Thank you for that, Tracy. Uh, there is a sermon outline that you might want to actually use in your uh, order of services, or you can have a look online. Uh, that would work as well. Uh, let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do thank you that you speak in and through your word. Uh, we thank you that you are present with us this evening. And we do pray and ask that we might draw strength and encouragement, that we might be challenged and rebuked uh, as we come under your word this Lord's Day. Strengthen us now by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to do this evening, uh, if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn with me to Mark chapter 12. I want to look at this very, very short story that Jesus tells uh, in Mark chapter 12. Jesus often spoke in parables. I know we're taking a break from our normal, normal series, but I thought we'd look at this one. Jesus spoke in parables, and he spoke in parables mainly to instruct. Uh, he spoke in parables to make a point. You know, so you've got the parable of the strong man, Mark chapter 3. Uh, you've got a parable of the sower and the seeds that many of you are actually quite familiar with. Uh, and then you've got a parable of the mustard seed in chapter 4. You know the one where Jesus says he plants a really small seed, grows in a big tree, and then the birds of the air come and they actually make a home in it. And so a parable is basically a story to illustrate something Jesus wanted to communicate. And this is what's happening here in Mark chapter 12. So in your Bibles, you look at Mark chapter 12, really only at verse 1 of verse 12. And you notice verse 1, it says, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. And as we look at this parable, Jesus will tell us three things about God. So we'll learn three things about God. Uh, His persevering love, His severe judgment, and His marvelous salvation. It's there in your outline, very simple, short three points, three things about God. A persevering love a severe judgment, and a marvelous salvation. Now, uh, this is what's happening. This is where we are up to uh, in Mark's gospel. It's very important to work out where we're up to. We're coming to chapter 12, uh, and things are now, in chapter 12, what you're going to discover is things are coming to a, you know, like a, a, a climactic uh, a clash, really, between Jesus and the religious authorities of the day, Okay. And, and we know that because if you go one chapter back in chapter 11, and you look at chapter 11, uh, this is what's happening. This is the background. Jesus is welcomed with excitement as he comes to the city of Jerusalem, the city of the king. Uh, and things come to a head when Jesus enters the temple, the place of worship, the Jewish house of worship. And, and what happens in chapter 11, and, and it's taking place here in chapter 12 as well, when Jesus enters the Jewish house of worship, what happens is he creates a scene as he starts to drive out uh, the money changers. Uh, those who are buying and selling in the temple courts, uh, he overturns the table of the money changers. He physically stops business in the temple courts. And as he teaches, uh, he goes head to head with the religious leaders of the day. So in your Bibles, you notice chapter 11, verse 17. Notice what happens. Jesus begins to teach and he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Right? Why? Because it should be a place where the nations are drawn in. But he says, you have made it a den of robbers. The temple should be a place of salvation for all people. That's been God's purpose, right? But you have made it uh, a place that makes money, a business enterprise, as it were. And so, notice verse 18, what happens, because now we have this uh, clash between Jesus and the religious authorities of the day. When the chief priests and teachers of the law heard this, they began looking for a way to kill him. And so, this is what's happening when we come to chapter 12. When we come to chapter 12, Jesus is still in the temple courts as he tells them this parable. Now, look with me at verse 1. Who is this parable directed at? Uh, Who is it for? Uh, 
And you know what? It's, he's still in the temple courts, and he tells them this parable. And if you come down to verse 12, it's directed at those who are looking for a way to kill Jesus. Uh, you see there, verse 12, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders of the people, they began to look for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. Okay? Now, this is the reason why I'm highlighting this. I'm highlighting this for us because you and I are not the them in this passage. Uh, you and I are not the target of Jesus' parable, right? So this parable Jesus tells really is not for us. Uh, it's a parable against the religious leaders of the day, the temple courts. But I do want to say to you that there, is, there are things we can learn indirectly uh, about the way God deals with them and also the way God deals with us. And hopefully you'll see that as we work through the passage or the parable. Now, in your Bibles, verse 1 to verse 8, notice the first thing I want you to notice uh, is that God's love, according to Jesus, is a persevering love. Uh, the parable Jesus tells begins, notice, uh, it begins with a man who plants a vineyard, okay? And it's a picture of a man who actually cares for his vineyard. See there in verse 1, he put a wall around it, uh, he dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a watchtower. Now, you put a wall around it to make sure nothing comes in to destroy it, right? You know, like, you know, uh, you know I look around the room and I suspect uh, a lot of you have parents who actually grow stuff in their backyard, right? And notice, you know, when you have older Chinese parents, they grow fruit trees. And what do they do? They cover it with netting. See, Juliana's like nodding ahead. They cover it with netting, right? So the birds don't come and eat the fruit, right? So that's, that's, what, hap that's what happens. You put a wall around it, make sure nothing comes in. But notice he also sets up a watchtower to guard and watch out for the dangers. Uh, that's the, the modern equivalent of CCTV camera, right, to make sure no one comes in to actually steal stuff. And you guys think it's funny because, you know, uh, we don't know where our vegetables come from, right? But Pauline and I, we went out to the west. The, where did we go? Southwest of Sydney, well, where there's places where you can buy cheap vegetables. You go direct to the farm. And it's really interesting when you go to those strawberry farms out there, they actually barb wire fences to keep people out. It's crazy. And then you look at the CCTV cameras as well to actually guard the strawberry fields. Well, this is the ancient Near East equivalent that's happening here. Uh, the other thing to note is that you and I are not religious Jews, uh, but if you were, this story of a man who plants and cares for his vineyard uh, is not an unusual story. You would have heard it before, especially if you're a religious Jew. Because the vineyard in the Bible is often used to describe the people of God in the Old Testament. Israel is God's vineyard, right? Uh, the vineyard is used in the Bible to speak of God's relationship to His people, Israel. They are the vineyard He loves. He planted them. He protected them. He cared for them. He provided for them. And as Jesus describes the man planting a vineyard, it's meant to take you back to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 is one of the great love songs in the Bible that describes God's love and His relationship to the vineyard. So, uh, there are many songs in the Bible that you guys are aware of, right? Love songs in the Bible. You know, think of uh, one of the greatest, great hits in the Bible, love songs in the Bible, the Song of Moses. That's a big one. They come out of the Exodus event, and Moses, you know, and Miriam, they sing. That's one of the famous songs in the Bible. What's another song in the Bible that's really famous at Christmas? Is Mary's song, the Magnificat. But Isaiah 5 is one that we are often not familiar with. So here's one to actually read and learn. Isaiah 5 is, is one of the great love songs of the Bible that describes God's relationship to the vineyard, right? And so if you have your Bibles, maybe you want to look at it or I'll, I'll read it out for us. Isaiah 5, verse 1 to verse 2, we read, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up 
and cleared it of stones. Why? And then he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, and he cut out a winepress as well. And so if you're a religious Jew, your mind goes to Isaiah 5, one of the great love songs of the Bible. But the love, love song in Isaiah 5 also doesn't just highlight God's love for His people, it also highlights His people's rejection of Him, their unfaithfulness, uh, their ungratefulness, their unfruitfulness. The vineyard is unfruitful. It's a troubled, long-term relationship of unrequited love. It's almost like a Taylor Swift song, right? So it's, it's, it's just constant, unrequited love. It's a love song about God's persevering love and their repeated rejection of Him. They belong to Him, but they keep rejecting Him, right? I asked Terence over there, right, because, you know, I figured Terence would know, you know, he's engaged in pop culture. I said, hey, tell me a, a song today that actually describes this. And he gave me the Bruno Mars song, Grenade. That best illustrates what's happening, right? Some of you, in fact, I did it in the morning service and only two people knew it, but that's the age of the morning service. But, you know, Bruno Mars' song, Grenade, gave you all I had and you tossed it in the trash. That effectively describes God's relationship to His people. Uh, and so the parable Jesus tells now focuses on the tenants of the vineyard. What does the man do in the parable Jesus tells? Well, he rents out the vineyard to some farmers to care for it, uh, to grow the vine and tend to the vine. And in the ancient world, that's not an unusual thing to do, right? You've got a property, what do you do? You rent it out, okay? Uh, but instead of renting out a property, they're renting out land, right? Agricultural society, they rent out land, they, pl- they look after the vineyard. And at harvest time, what happens is a portion of the harvest will be paid to you as the landowner or, or, or the, the grapes, as it were. But this is what happens in the story Jesus tells. So in your Bibles, look at verse 2 to verse 5, right? Because verse 2 to verse 5, it's repeated for us. Harvest comes around, the owner of the vineyard sends a servant to collect the fruit of the vineyard. And in verse 3, but they seized him. The idea there is they violently laid hands on him, beat him, sent him on his way empty-handed. And then a second servant is sent, right? Verse 4. But then they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully, disgracefully. And then a third servant is sent, verse 5, but they killed him. And then we read at the end of verse 5, he keeps sending many others. Some of them they beat, some of them they killed. Now, it's such an unusual story, isn't it? Why would the owner of the vineyard put up with this? Why wouldn't he just evict them? Why does he keep persisting with them? Was he powerless to act? Was he weak and afraid? Of course not. Because remember, this is a parable against them the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders of the people. They are the tenants of the vineyard, responsible for the vineyard. The leaders of Israel are responsible for the people of God and the temple, the place of worship. And the servants sent to them are actually the prophets that God has repeatedly sent to His leaders that they've rejected and killed. And that has been the Old Testament story of God and His people God and His leaders, God keeps sending them servants. He sends them prophet again and again. Uh, And the prophet comes always to remind God's people of His love for them, calling them to come home, giving them a chance to repent. Uh, In fact, one of the things you and I need to remember is that, you know, when we think of the prophets in the Old Testament, we we often think of them as messengers of doom, don't we? You hear the word prophet, you think, oh, prophets of doom. Well, that's not true. Right, Because the prophet actually comes always to remind God's people of His love for them. God has loved you. Look at your history. 
Look at the way He's treated you. Look at what He's done for you. So, so the prophets come reminding them of His love, and then the prophets say, but if you don't come home, there will be consequences. And But notice, all His attempts in this story, God's attempts with Israel's leaders, are met with rejection and the worst possible violence, death to His servants. Now, this is not new because later on in Acts chapter 7, verse 52, right? In Acts 7, verse 52, Stephen will stand before the same group of leaders. Stephen in Acts 7, 52, he's going to stand before the prophets, uh, sorry, he's going to stand before the chief priests, uh, the elders and the teachers of the law, and there Stephen is going to say to them, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And so there they're going to be condemned again. But that's been the story of God's relationship with Israel, God's relationship to His leaders, Israel's leaders. Gave you all I had, and you kept throwing it in the trash. Okay? Very important for us to understand that. And that's what we're meant to see in this parable. We are meant to see God's persevering love, a persevering love for rebellious and ungrateful people. He doesn't give up on them. He continues to pursue those whom He loves, even when it's met with rejection and violence. And repeatedly you see it, right? In verse 2 to verse 5, it's there in your outlines as well. Verse 2 to verse 5, he sent a servant, he sent another servant, he sent still another, he sent many others. Has it ever occurred to you that God is not just a God of second chances? He's a God of third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth and tenth. He's a God of multiple chances. Repeatedly we read in the Old Testament... The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Did you hear that? Repeatedly, that is how God is described in the Old Testament. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. You know, we memorize many, many Bible verses, you know, John 3, 16, all sorts of things. That is one that is worth memorizing. It comes from Psalm 103, among many other places. The great myth is that the God of the Old Testament is filled with wrath and vengeance, and the God of the New Testament is filled with grace and mercy. That is simply untrue. The God of the Old and New Testament, the Lord, is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's the God of the Bible. God has always been and continues to be compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Memorize that verse. Israel's relationship to God is a testimony to that truth, the story of God giving them everything, and they keep throwing it in the trash. Now, finally, we read verse 6. So look at verse 6 with me. The owner of the vineyard has one left to send, a son we read whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will surely respect my son. They'll receive him. It makes sense. They'll welcome him. Instead, we read verse 7, verse 8, but the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. Because if we get rid of the heir, then the inheritance, the vineyard will be ours, right? Because there will be no heir. So they took him, that is, they violently seized him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Now, it's very unexpected, isn't it? In fact, when you read it, you sort of go, it's unexpected because it's really, really foolish, isn't it? But this is their rationale. The heir will come, the vineyard is going to be his, come, let's kill him, and then it will be ours. The vineyard will be ours. If we kill and dispose of the son, the vineyard's owner right, will lose the land. Notice that it's not that they don't recognize the son, that they act with violence. No, it's precisely because they know who he is that they respond with violence. 
they don't just want to keep the fruit of the vineyard. You can sort of understand, right? We want to keep the fruit of the vineyard, but no, they don't just want to keep the fruit of the vineyard. They want the vineyard. This is the ultimate rejection of God's love. Now, in Mark's gospel, the story of Jesus in Mark's gospel, you and I know what will happen, right? Because we're in Mark chapter 12, right? There's only 15 chapters in the book of Mark. So you sort of know what's going to happen in the next few chapters. Because in the next few chapters, as the days unfold, what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to be violently seized. He's going to be beaten to a pulp, and then he's going to be nailed to a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem, cast out of the vineyard. And so he sends prophet after prophet, reminding them that they are the vineyard God loves. They have rejected him. And finally, he sends a son whom he loves to a pack of murderers. So, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, look at verse 9. Because this is the question Jesus now poses, right? What then will the Lord of the vineyard do? How will the owner of the vineyard respond to the murder of his son? And as you've read the parable... It's really not hard to imagine that the tenants would have thought nothing of the owner of the vineyard, right? Why? Because there have been no consequences. The owner is either weak or powerless. There has been no judgment, no retribution. He keeps sending servants. Nothing has happened. So the assumption is everything will be the same. Nothing will happen. But for the first time we read verse 9, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The owner's response is incredibly decisive and severe, isn't it? He will intervene. He will step in. He will not kill. The word there is destroy. It's a very different word that's used. He will destroy the tenants, and he'll give the vineyard to those who are more deserving. Notice, judgment actually comes not on the vineyard, but on the tenants of the vineyard. Why? Because they reject the owner's son that was sent to them. Now, you, you do need to notice this, that in this parable, Jesus' word of judgment comes after a long, long, long overture of persevering love. Isn't that incredible? After a long, long, long overture of persevering love. Again, it's a reminder to us, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. But judgment finally comes, and it's a severe judgment that comes with the rejection of the Son. Now, Jesus doesn't end there. Uh, Come with me to verse 10 and verse 11, because notice what He now says in verse 10 and verse 11. He says to them, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? So He says to the religious leaders, you should know, you know your Bibles. And this actually comes from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Okay? This is Jesus' take. Now, this is Jesus' interpretation on, on what's happening, right? The, the, the animosity between him and the religious leaders of the day and what's going to actually happen in the coming days. This is Jesus' take. They are the builders. He's the stone they are rejecting. And what they don't realize is that he's actually the cornerstone. He's the foundation stone, really, of the new temple God is going to build. He'll be the house of prayer that will bring the nations in. The unfruitfulness of the temple's ministry, right? Uh, her religious leaders, they will go. It's going to come to an end. God will use the re- their rejection of Him to build a far greater temple where the nations will come in. Their failure will not derail God's plans to save. He will turn the rejection uh, and death of the Son into a marvelous salvation for many. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Now, those of you who know your Bibles, and if you don't, here's something for you. It's the reason why later on you read in 1 Peter chapter 2, other passages in the New Testament too, you read in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus is the living stone, rejected by humans, chosen by God, a precious cornerstone. You read the same language. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told that you and I here in this room are what? We are living stones brought together, built into a spiritual house by trusting Jesus, the cornerstone. Or we read in Ephesians 2 verse 19 and verse 22 that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And He's the cornerstone that brings the vineyard, Israel, together and brings us into the vineyard to become the new temple where God dwells by His Spirit. So later on, the epistles will unpack that. God is going to achieve a marvelous thing in the rejection of Jesus, the salvation of many. God is going to achieve a marvelous thing in the murder of His Son, the salvation of many. God is going to achieve a marvelous thing in the humiliating death of Jesus, the salvation of many. It's the rejection of Jesus, the death of Jesus, that's going to be the means through which God actually saves. Now, at this point, you can sort of understand why the religious leaders, chief priests, teachers of the law, why they get angry. Because Jesus is actually threatening their power, their authority, right? Their teaching, their moral righteousness. The parable Jesus tells is a word reminding them, not just of God's persevering love, but God's judgment on them. They are no different to God's people Israel. Uh, you know, they, they're no different, really, uh, to those who've gone before them. A history of God's persevering love and their unfaithfulness. A history of their rebellion and rejection of Him. Uh, they are the tenants uh, that in the parable Jesus tells, they're the one who re rejected and killed the prophets. They're the ones who conspired to have the Son killed, and they will kill the Son, won't they? They're the ones that God will judge and destroy. And so, no surprise, verse 12, they look for a way to arrest Him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, okay? Now, three points in conclusion. It's there in your outlines as well. Three things we're going to walk away with, I hope, today. Like I said at the start, you and I are not the target of Jesus' parable, okay? Uh, Jesus, what Jesus says here in this parable doesn't apply to us directly. It's a parable against the religious leaders of the day, their failure. But I do think we can learn something about God and the way he deals with us as well. So here are three points. Firstly, God's persevering love isn't limited to them, Israel, but also to us. Because remember, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. True for them and true for us. Got to remember that. In fact, we read in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, and I'll read that for us in a moment, in Romans 2, verse 4, that when we treat our sins lightly and there are no consequences... When we live no different to the world around us and there are no consequences, when we condemn others for the things we ourselves do, when we disregard our hidden sins, because no one knows and no one will ever find out and there are no consequences, Paul says, God is being kind to you. God is being patient with you. God is showing you His forbearance, His leniency, His restraint, His mercy. And that's why, you know, Romans 2 verse 4, and, you know, we're looking at the book of Romans next year. Romans 2 verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, Are you showing contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. The kindness of God in not bringing the full weight of His immediate judgment on you, 
in our lives is meant to lead us to repentance. The fact that there are no immediate consequences for willful sin and disregard of God's Word in our lives is not an indicator that God is absent or God is powerless. It's a reminder to us that God is kind and is giving us time to repent. The Lord is always compassionate and gracious. He's always slow to anger. He's always abounding in love so that you and I might repent. And it's worth reflecting on that, isn't it? You know, I don't know what's happening in your life. You know, I, I shared with Adrian at the back that, you know, in the morning service this morning, I went on a bit of an excursus, uh, sort of like a, a detour, and I was like, oh, should I do a detour in the evening service? And, and then Adrian said, oh, if you did that, huge, you know, I'm going to boo you from the back. And so let's see whether he boos me from the back. <laughs> okay, he's doing a quiet boo. So, so, so bear with me, right? So uh, two weeks ago, uh, I was sharing at the elders, um, at the elders meeting uh, a portion of the Bible that I've been reflecting on. And, you know, I, I was reflecting on, on, on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, okay? And if you know anything about the book of Corinthians, is, is 1 Corinthians really, Paul is dealing with division in the church, right? People are fighting among themselves. And so when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's really interesting because he doesn't talk about division. When you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul actually says, hey, look at the Old Testament people of God. Learn from the Old Testament people of God. L- look at their relationship to God and let that be a warning to you, Okay? And and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, when you look at the Old Testament people of God and their relationship to God, he highlights three sins. And those three sins, as I've looked at the life of our church, we got the trifecta at Grace Point. Not for good reasons, right? All bad reasons, right? The trifecta of sins that affects Christians, right? The first one, he says, look at the Old Testament people of God. Idolatry. They worship the golden calf. They had other functional gods that they actually attributed thanksgiving to. We have idols in our lives, right? You laugh that they worship a golden calf, but now we worship idols too. The idol of work and career and children, right? The, the, the idols of, of uh, you know, uh, the having the right body shape, body size, the right relationship. So we have idols too. So that was number one. He says, look at the Old Testament people of God, right? That's a sin, And then he highlights the second one. So the first one's idolatry. The second one is immorality. And when we think of immorality, we think of sexual immorality. And that's true. That's there. But immorality is also careless living, wild living, uncontrolled living. And it's there. And then the third sin, when he looked at the Old Testament people of God, when, when Paul looks at the Old Testament people of God, he says the third sin, and this one really surprised me, was ingratitude, grumbling, never thankful, Three sins that mark the Old Testament people of God. Idolatry, immorality, and ingratitude. Three eyes. Easy to remember, isn't it? And, and, you know, when we look at the landscape of our lives, look back at your year gone past. And maybe you've fallen into one of these three things and not even realized it. Or maybe you, you willfully engage in one of these three things and you think nothing has happened. And can I say to you, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, so that you and I might repent. That's what God is doing. You know, it's interesting, you know, Paul's final words to Timothy uh, and the church in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, right? He, uh, Paul writes to Timothy to the Ephesian church, 1 Timothy 5, 24, and a lot of people don't read the ends of the epistles because, you know, it's like it's, 
it's like the final words, like, you know, greet so-and-so, uncle so-and-so who's in the house of so-and-so, and tell them, you know, we still care and love them. Well, you read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24. And 1 Timothy 5, 24, Paul actually says to Timothy, hey, Timothy, you tell the church, and this is what he writes, remember that our hidden sins cannot remain hidden forever. And so he writes that the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. In other words, sometimes people sin, the consequences of judgment are immediate. Okay? But then he says, the sins of others trail behind them. You don't see their sins. They are hidden. But the sins of others trail behind them. There are no immediate consequences, but it will come. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Church, the fact that there are no immediate consequences for willful sin in our lives, for the disregard of God's way and God's word in our lives, is not an indicator that God is absent or powerless. It's a reminder to us that God is kind. He's giving us time to repent. And maybe, just maybe, like Israel, like the religious, God has been kind to you and to me today. In fact, God has been kind to you, hasn't He? Because every week as you come and you hear His Word, He's extending to you His grace, His kindness to you, hasn't He? The writer to the Hebrews says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't be like the Old Testament people of God who harden their hearts and perish in the wilderness. And then the writer to the Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, Nothing in all creation... Nothing in your life or my life is hidden from the sight of Him, uncovered, laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must all give an account. Church, the fact that there are no immediate consequences for willful sin, disregard of God's Word and God's way in our lives, is never an indicator God is powerless or that He is absent. It's a reminder to us that He is kind and giving us time to repent. And maybe, just maybe, the kindness of God's persevering love will take hold of you and move you to repentance. Secondly, here's the second thing. God's persevering love does have a time out in God's economy. In the parable Jesus tells, notice, the final rejection of the Son leads to their destruction. Notice in the parable Jesus tells, the tenants are only stewards of God's vineyard. They have no regard for the owner of the vineyard. Uh, they will not acknowledge Him. They will not give Him what is due to Him. In fact, when you look at the parable Jesus tells, what do they want to be? They want to actually be owners of the vineyard, right? They want to, they want to be the lords of the vineyard, okay? And in many ways, what you see in the parable isn't just the sin of the chief priests, teachers of the law, elders of Israel. It's really the sin of all people, isn't it? They want to be owners of the vineyard. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 23 puts it like this, right? Romans 1, 21 23 is the heart of sin. Very important we get this. That is at the heart of sin. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, neither did they give thanks to Him in gratitude. But their thinking became futile, their hearts were foolish, they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and what did they do? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like themselves and the things around them, right? You could say... For although they knew the owner of the vineyard, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. They didn't give him what was due to him. Their thinking became futile. Their hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools 
and they exchanged the glory of the Lord of the vineyard for images made to look like themselves. They want the glory of the owner of the vineyard. And so they did everything to erase him. They beat up his servants, kill his servants, kill his son. Why? They attempt to take the place of the Lord of vineyard, of the vineyard. That's what they try to do. Everyone tries to do that, by the way. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, some people I know, you have friends and family who don't believe in God, or maybe you don't believe in God, but Christian people do. And I want to say this morning that the belief in God or the belief in a creator is not based on blind faith. I know you've got people, friends who will say that. You know, you're, you're a Christian, you believe in God, that's blind faith. But, you know, you, you, you know, our belief in God is not based on blind faith. It's based on reasonable grounds. Christian people believe there's a good God who is the creator of the world in which we live. Why? Because it's fair to assume that if there is design in the world, there must be a designer. It's fair to assume that if there's laws of nature, there must be a lawmaker. It's fair to assume that if there's beauty in the world, there's an artist. It's fair to assume that if there is love, there must be a great lover. And so in the Christian worldview, there is a good God who is creator of the world in which we live, who is creator of the vineyard in which we are stewards. Now, here's the problem. Christian, non-Christian, we all think we can live in God's world and ignore Him, dismiss Him, even oppose Him and get away with it. We think we can ignore God in our lives and not face any consequences. In fact, if you are honest and if I'm honest, we all want to be masters and lords in our own lives. We have no need of God, and so we do everything to actually push Him out of the picture, or we want just enough of Christ to give us a bit of comfort in life on Sunday, a little bit of fellowship, but not too much to actually impose on our lives. And so we do everything to push Him out of the picture, and we strive to take His place in life. And so the posture of our hearts, if you really probe deep in your heart, the posture of our hearts is always one of defiance when it comes to God. In the words of William Henley's Invictus, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I'm not afraid of judgment. Why? Because I am master of my fate. I'm captain of my soul. Did the tenants think they could get away with it? Absolutely. Do people today think that by erasing God, ignoring Him, dismissing Him, by adopting a posture of defiance, they can get away with it? Of course they think they do. Now here's a better question. Do Christian people think that by disregarding God, his will, His way, His word, His priorities in my life, that I can get away with it? Oh, I think a lot of Christian people think they can get away with it. And if we're honest, we would say we think we can get away with it. Now, 2 Peter 3 speaks of men and women who scoff and mock God. And what's really interesting is 2 Peter 3 is not just written to the scoffer and mocker on the outside, it's spoken as well to Christians on the inside challenging men and women who live by their own desires in life, who adopt a posture of defiance saying, where is this judgment that God speaks of? Nothing's happened. Nothing's changed. Everything goes on as it has since the creation. And Peter responds to that, 2 Peter chapter 3, and he says, verse 8 to verse 12, friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting you to perish, but everyone to come in repentance. And so, how ought you to live? You ought to live holy and godly lives, 
as you bring forward to the day of God and speed its coming. There is actually a timeout in God's economy. Did you know that? There is a timeout in God's economy. In your life and in my life. And if it hasn't happened, it's because God is being patient with you, not wanting you to perish, but to come to Him in repentance. You are alive and here today because God is patiently persevering in His love for you. But notice there is also a severe judgment to come, isn't there? Because no one actually escapes it. 2 Peter 3 speaks of a consuming fire that destroys everything. There's a time's up in your life and my life. If you believe in justice, it's fair to assume that there is a judge, isn't there? You cannot live your life ignoring him, dismissing him, adopting a posture of defiance and think there will be no consequences. Remember Hebrews 4 verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the, one, the eyes of the one to whom you must give an account. That's number two. Here's the third thing. The good news, though, is salvation is ours because of Jesus, the rejected cornerstone. He perseveres in love for us. There is a judgment, but there is a salvation because of Jesus, the rejected cornerstone. On the one hand, you know, we see Jesus rejected by the chief priest teachers of the law, violently seized, beaten, crucified. But then on the other hand, we see Jesus willingly going to the cross to give his life for many. And that's what we read in Mark chapter 10. So in the storyline of Mark's gospel, right, we read in Mark chapter 10, despite the rejection by the religious leaders, Jesus also goes to the cross willingly. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we read, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what he came to do. Jesus saves by being rejected. In fact, it's our rejection that put him on the cross. He comes not to a deserving people, but to an undeserving people. He comes not to gather beautiful people, but disfigured people. He comes to give up his life a ransom, not for good people, but for bad people. Uh, if you know anything about Mark's gospel, and many of you are familiar with the story, remember what Jesus says. If you go back to Mark chapter 2, right, Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's true, right? When you, I mean, if Nate, for example, here, right? Let's say uh, there's nothing wrong with Nate. He goes to see a doctor, and the doctor says, what's wrong with you? He goes, nothing. I'm just here. The you know, doctor goes, what's wrong with this guy, right? He's nothing wrong with him. Why you come see me for, right? So it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And then it, Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners, the God-hater, God-defying people, people who can't meet God's standard. So important for us to get this. I repeatedly say this, and we still don't get it. The myth is that Christianity is for people who've got their lives together. You know, there's some people in our church who think, when I get my life together, then I'll be serious with God. I'll come back to church and do all that stuff. Well, you got it all wrong. The myth is that Christianity is for people who've got their lives together. The myth is that Christianity is for good people. The myth is that Christianity is a religion of good works. No, Jesus says he comes to call, to invite, to embrace, to save, not the healthy, not the righteous, but sinners. Right? This is what makes Christianity different from every religious or secular worldview. In religion, the God or the power says, work at being righteous, pay for your sin, do enough, and I'll forgive you. I'll accept you. Your good works can save you. You know, like, you know it's like going to see a doctor who only wants patients who can heal themselves. It's like if I go see a doctor, I've got a cough and cold, and you know, I say I'm here because I'm feeling really unwell, and the doctor says, heal yourself. What am I coming here for? I've come here because you're the specialist. You know what you're doing. 
I'm here because you can do something about my illness, right? Now, the secular works no different. The secular might not believe in God, but the secular says, you've got to be good enough to be accepted, beautiful enough to be loved, smart enough to be recognized, rich enough to be secure. Your hard work can save you. But Christianity is very different, isn't it? Because in Christianity, God says, let me heal you. Let me satisfy you. Let me fix you. Let me deal with your sin. Let me give you the identity that will give you the security you want. Let me meet your failure. Let me deal with your guilt. That's why Jesus came. He came to call, to invite, to welcome, to embrace, not the healthy, but the sick, the sinner. People who can't meet God's standard. People who are broken. People who are failures. People who have lived their lives ignoring Him. And at the cross, He is actually saving us. Giving His life a ransom for our sin. Dying the death that should have been ours. Facing the judgment that should have been ours. Crushed for sin that should have been ours. Salvation is ours because of God's persevering love that went all the way to the cross. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone that saves you and me. That's why in Christianity and what we celebrate at Christmas, God says, trust Jesus, the cornerstone, to save you. The saving message of religion is trust your good works to save you. The saving message of the secular is trust your performance to save you. The message of Christianity is trust Jesus, the cornerstone, to save you. And because of that, God's marvelous salvation is available to all, to you, because of Jesus, the rejected cornerstone. Many of you know the Bruno Mars song, Grenade, right? He doesn't just sing, gave you all I had and you tossed it in the trash. Because he goes on and he sings, but I'd still catch a grenade for you, throw my hand on a blade for you. I would go through all the pain, take a bullet through my brain. Yes, I would die for you. And that is what Jesus does. The persevering love of God is a reminder to us that He waits. He longs for us to repent. The severe judgment of God is a reminder to us that God calls us to account. There will be a judgment, but He calls us to repent. The marvelous salvation of God is a reminder to us that salvation is possible. Forgiveness is possible because of Jesus, the cornerstone, who came and died in our place. He longs for us to repent, to trust Him. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do thank You from beginning to end, from creation and into eternity. You, the Lord, are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And we know that because we see it in Your Son, who went to the cross for us. And so we come to you in a spirit of not just humility and repentance, we come to you as well in a spirit of humble gratefulness, especially as we celebrate the Christmas season. We remember from heaven you came, your persevering love came, and extended itself in an overture of love all the way to the cross. And for that, we are grateful. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.